Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show, New Zealand's aviation podcast series. If you have not already done so, please check out our extensive archive of past shows, either on the Wings Over Cambridge website or on iTunes. Please rate the show on iTunes and leave a review there. And please like our Facebook page. You can find us at www.facebook.com slash show. That's W-O-N-Z-S-H-O-W. You can rate and review the shows there on Facebook, or you can go to the Wings Over New Zealand Aviation Forum, where there's a whole little section just for the show. The Wings Over New Zealand show is brought to you in association with the Wings Over New Zealand Aviation Forum, New Zealand's number one aviation discussion forum online. There you'll find discussion on all aspects of New Zealand aviation, from history to current affairs and thousands of photos covering the Royal New Zealand Air Force, airlines, general aviation, warbird restorations, air show news, sport aviation, home building, gliding, aviation media and much, much more. You'll be in good company with other aviation enthusiasts, including pilots, engineers, warbird owners and restorers, historians and authors, modelers, aviation photographers and many others. Sign up to the Wings Over New Zealand community now. It's free and easy. Just Google Wings Over New Zealand and you'll find the forum. Hi, it's Matt Jolly from WarbirdRadio.com. Listen, I am thrilled to have Dave Homewood as part of our broadcast family and bring your stories, the stories of the RNZAF, heard right here on Wings Over New Zealand to our global audience. Thanks for listening and hope to hear from you sometime at WarbirdRadio.com. Extended. Hi, this is Peter Johnson from Aerospace Radio Station Extended, and we bring you some of Europe's best guests. He's he's been something of of an unsung hero of the American space program, outside those who have have made it their business to become aficionados of it. News. (laughs) Some people will call you mad, some people will call you heroes, uh, uh, and everyone else is probably somewhere in that spectrum. It's it's an amazing project to, to pull together from literally from scratch. And views. You've got to pick yourself up, dust yourself off, and learn from that experience. And that's not an easy thing to do, Peter, learning from your own failure. So why not give us a listen if you want to hear about warbirds, aviation, and the aerospace industry? Come over and give us a visit. Aviation-extended.co.uk And remember, there's no E at the beginning of extended. Extended. I remember some men started prying and others started crying. Um, Partway through it, one guy got to his feet and started to run. I was scared and let that be no secret. Next thing they set the spando up there and they opened up. And there's bloody trees, bits of trees flying. And... New Zealand tanks were over the other river and one of our men said to them, he said, don't start your tanks up. For five minutes, we'll be out of it. Well, some silly bugger started his tank and the Germans put over a shell and right in the middle of the bridge. It was a bitterly cold morning and I was crouched down in this damn hole it took me two days before I could stand up straight again. Here are the stories of New Zealanders in the Italian campaign in World War II. The Courage and Valor podcast. www.newzealandersatwar.com 
the Wings Over New Zealand show would like to acknowledge the great support it's had from Fly DC3. You can fly back in time with Fly DC3 from Ardmore Airport, charter the DC3 Dakota and fly into the past. It's an experience you'll never forget. Fly DC3. Go to www.flydc3.co.nz. Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood. Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show. I'm your host, Dave Homewood. Recently, I had the great opportunity to sit down and record an interview with Mac Betjeman. Mac was a pilot during World War II and was most associated with the short Sunderland flying boats. Later in life, he became very associated with the restoration of the short Sunderland that's at the Museum of Transport and Technology. Here's Mac. Well, I am, my, my Christian name is not just Mac, it's McNab. And uh, no other Christian name, just McNab, Betjeman. And uh, so I'm, I'm called Mac. In fact, uh, it's almost dangerous to call me McNab. <laughs> <laughs> I had my mother on many, many times for that. And what really, she was McNab, you see. Oh, right. She was Scottish, yeah. Ah, right. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Dad met her in the County London War Hospital when he was he was uh, recovering from Gallipoli. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. That's how that came about. But anyway, uh, I was born uh, up the Wanganui River. When Dad came home, he was a he was a steam engineer and uh, they were going to shift him from his job down in Tony up to the, uh, the East Coast and uh, they were starting up a new works up there, freezing works, and Dad had married Mother over in Scotland when he was recuperating, you see. Yeah. And, uh, he, and he was a daughter but born by then, because uh, Dad came home quite a bit before mother did and uh, so he said oh, I've got a wife coming I want to get out of here so he he went he uh, went to the uh, Minister of Lands and said what have you got the way of farming because he, he had been brought up on a farm on the west coast of South Island yeah. and the minister said well uh, he said I think you would know, like to go up the east coast somewhere and the minister said we well, are just opening up an area up the Wanganui River. We're most enthusiastic about it, this place, and uh, we've uh, so Dad was sold straight, straight away on because it was dirt cheap. Yeah. But it was all in bush. I had to cut the bush, right. you see. And uh, he was prepared to do that. So he went up there, and uh, uh, the settlers all started there. And they uh, were just getting going nicely, of course, and the slump came in the 30s. Right. And they only had a few, by then they had a bit of land cleared, each of them. Some of them were uh, square pegs and round holes or whatever, you know, they just had never been on farm before. 
before, but Dad had it. He knew about farming. And uh, the slump came and they became disillusioned one at a time and the valley became deserted. But that was not completely deserted. But the had in the meantime, there'd been a school there. Uh, actually, the school was started in one of the settlers' abandoned shacks. And our school was in a shack for a start. And uh, Dad and Mother, they boarded the teacher, and a sole-charge teacher. And uh, we had several women teachers. Uh, two or three, and then we had a man teacher who uh, ultimately married my eldest sister. And uh, anyway, uh, the settlers became disillusioned progressively during the 30s when the slump was on. And Dad told me that he, the, that he and mother and the family lived on 50 pounds for an entire year. Yeah, but mind you, they grew their own vegetables. And we didn't starve, that was one thing. That's one thing where the city dwellers, the slump was more severe for them. Yeah, But they worked very hard and uh, the road in from Ratahi, uh, the, the Mangapurua section at the end of it, uh, it was so deserted that they finally, the land department said to the three remaining settlers, we can't afford to keep this road open for you, you'll have to go. We'll finance you onto another property, we'll transfer your, your mortgage to another property. And uh, so they were a terrible disappointment because we had quite a good farm then. Uh, there were only two of the three that were left who were really serious farmers at all. The other man was just a hard jobber. And uh, so these two, and uh, our farm was very nice. We had a nice homestead and a new wool shed and everything. And then they had to turn their backs. Uh, the road had been widened in and, and metalled finally. All this happened through the late 20s and 30s. And uh, so it was a great disappointment. Yeah. Uh, Dad had a nice wool shed and, and yards and cattle yards and the house had been enlarged. You know, it was a really nice farm. So I just turned the backs on it. So, that, so there were just three families there. There were no Maori communities in that area. No, or? no. It's no. Just, just three people. Just there? three people. Yeah. Oh, sorry, three families. Yeah. Yeah, three families. Of course, the remaining farmers grazed what areas had been felled by other farmers that had abandoned them. So uh, Dad had quite a big flock by then, but he just had to must them up and sell them and leave everything behind. Wow. They took the windows out of the house, and, but uh, they came in from outside then and dismantled anything that was worth dismantling. People just came in and the place was... Uh, it wasn't vandalised because it was abandoned, but yeah. 
they got what they could out of it, yeah. and the valley was closed. So do you know what it's like now? Has it gone yeah, back to bush? Yeah, now the, the, the history of it since then was that there was a man became very interested in the Wollongong newspapers, Arthur Bates, and he heard about this, and he started to investigate it, and he interviewed Dad, and he, and he, uh, uh, Dad had written his his memoirs about. We persuaded him to write his memoirs, and he called it the birth, the uh, birth, life, and death of a settlement. And uh, they were just a little soft thing. But this Arthur Bates from all the newspapers, uh, he got it and he published a book called The Bridge to Nowhere. Oh, I've heard of that. Now that is the Mungapura Valley. Now that just shows you how things uh, transpired during the period it was occupied. They decided there was a swing bridge across the stream at the bottom near the Wanganui River, where it joined the Wanganui River. And of course then, before abandonment had been thought of, they went, this swing bridge was not suitable for widening for traffic. Uh, horses used to go across, it was quite a, quite a thing to get a pack team. Dad said you... <laughs> He said we got a pack team once packing our stuff up from the river before the road was completed to the river city. And uh, he said a front horse got turned round and here was the swing bridge with all these horses loaded. And he said he held his breath. He thought the thing can't possibly sustain all these. It was a deep gorge too. But anyway. He had to go up the front and turn the horse round, the front horse round. He said it was really hazardous. But anyway, that was by the way. And uh, the swing bridge, they decided then there would have to be uh, replaced. So they replaced it with a beautiful arched concrete bridge. And uh, it was thought puzzled at the time why they put such a, a good bridge in. But apparently, the, government had decided that perhaps a link between the west and the central North Island could be made through that area. And they had ideas of one of the narrowest bridge sites up the to cross the Wanganui River wasn't far up from our landing, Mungapura Landing, so that was the thinking of the department at the time. But then that's the the slump came and everything changed. All these things that they abandoned and there was this beautiful concrete bridge <laughs> sitting in there and you couldn't even drive. Oh yes, they, they did. They drove their cars to it and drove them over and drove them back again. I think Dad tried to drive to the Wollongong River landing but it wasn't, the road was not really properly formed there. I don't think he got his car to the landing, but anyway, he went across the concrete bridge and back again with the car, and that's the last vehicle that ever went over them. And even when I was, before I left, it, the whole place was abandoned in the bottom, the road was hopelessly deteriorated, and here was this beautiful bridge, and uh, 
And of course, that's why the, and Arthur Bates wrote this book, The Bridge to Nowhere, because somebody named that bridge to nowhere, and it stuck. And, uh, yeah, and it's still there, and it's still the bridge to nowhere. But I believe, I haven't been back for years and years, I'll never go back now, but apparently it's become a mecca for river, for the river people who come up and down the river and, uh, you know, you must stop at the Mungapurunani and go to the bridge to nowhere. And apparently the lower end of the track, from the bridge to the, to the landing, is now <laughs> used far more than it ever was. That's <laughs> <laughs> already, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> and, and all the valley is abandoned. Uh, they, they still have the track up the valley and that is used frequently by trampers. They come in from Ratahi and, and go back in there and arrange to have uh, uh, canoes or, or a boat or power boat. Uh, Hattricks, uh, the, the Wanganui River had a, a service who was uh, Ali, a man called Alexander Hattrick. Uh, got river boats specially made in Scotland to negotiate the Wanganui River and he had river services going right up originally to Tamanui. But he had special boats for the top end and there was uh, and of course he also built the Pipariki House, a beautiful hotel at Pipariki and uh, he had a thriving business but of course gradually and of course the settlers in the early days of the river service, they depended on the river service. So it boomed and Hattrick did very well. But uh, his Alexander Hattrick, he, he passed on, left it to his son and Ron Hattrick was the man that we were dealing with mostly in Mungapura. And, uh, but gradually it became Wanganui River Services in the finish. But it, I don't think it exists. To what extent it exists today, I don't know. I just can't say. But uh, so that's the situation with the valley today. We, as kids, uh, we there was a school. Uh, one of the uh, the buildings or the shacks that had been built originally. Testers was one, and that was converted into a school. But it didn't have a tongue groove flooring. It had, it had a split flooring, and they, they imported the desks, proper school desks, and they recommended the bad flooring caused them to get warped and start to disintegrate. But anyway, we had sole charge teachers, mostly ladies' teachers, but then we got two men teachers, one after the other. We had a number of teachers during my day. And uh, so I had a, a primary education, but uh, we had to go on to correspondence school if we wanted to go further. So I joined the correspondence school. And uh, I 
uh, to be quite frank, to sit down in the, in the house and study things and all the activity out on the farm. Uh, not ideal for correspondence school study. So uh, I used to have my own little, my own dog, pig dog, and we used to go pig hunting, this dog and I, and he always stayed on these pigs, he'd bail a pig, and I never wanted to let him down, so I'd always go and find where he was and kill a pig and, and give him a good old Pat and, and uh, he got dependent on me and sometimes it would be after dark when I got home and that was tough on my mother, you know. Yeah. Oh yeah. I think back to those days and I think poor old mother. And, uh, but uh, however, <coughs> the war came of course and uh, I wanted to join up. I told Dad straight away I was 17 and uh, I wanted to join up. And uh, he said, well, I won't stand in your way. Uh, I didn't ask Mother, poor Mother, I didn't even ask her. So I wrote, wrote myself, I wrote to the Air Department in Wellington and she said that I, I wanted to join the Air Force. And I am going to prompt letter back again too. And they said, uh, okay, but you'll need a uh, university entrance. Of course, I was way ahead of my education, so that was no good, but I rejoined the correspondence school. And I thought, well, I'll study and I'll see if I can get them. But the pig hunting won the day a bit again, I'm afraid. <laughs> yes, and so, uh, Anyway, after a while, of course, the war didn't go well. Gallipoli failed, and and uh, no, Gallipoli didn't fail. Uh, the Middle East oh, did. Yeah. I'm trying to think. Greece, Greece, and Crete. Greece, yeah. yeah, that that failed, you see, and uh, the thing got quite serious because the, the France had had uh, made arrangements and virtually the Germans were waiting on the, uh, they had the whole of Europe at their disposal really. And uh, so of course then they had thought they better, uh, they wanted all the recruits they could possibly get so they then altered their requirements for uh, for Air Force uh, one and a half years secondary education. So I'd done uh, one year, one year complete and another half year. So I submitted my thing you know, and I was accepted. So I had to wait then to be called up. So, uh, oh, and in the meantime, they, uh, they had the pre, uh, um, what were you called? Uh, you, they, you started to study uh, part of the Air Force, what was requirement, you know, some of the navigation, all that sort of thing, uh, by correspondence, you see. Right, right. Guys who were waiting to get 
to go into camp, they they actually uh, were already studying navigation and airmanship by correspondence. So uh, I was doing that, and finally I was called up. And uh, oh no, no wait, wait, wait! It didn't happen in that. I was studying that, and then of course the Bell uh, Harbour and everything changed then. Straight away I received a note to report of Trentham and uh, so I went uh, down there and uh, oh, another thing I was going to mention beforehand is I passed my pre-entry thing I drove myself to Okuni and took a train down to Taihapi. That's where they had the exam for us country boys. A whole lot of country boys assembled there and we sat this exam. And after a while we got notification. Well, I did that I'd been accepted. I suppose most of the others did too, probably. But anyway, once this, the Japanese came into the war, the war had all changed and we were immediately scooped in and I was uh, attached to the to the ASC, the uh, Reserve Motor Transport, the RMT and I, I had to report to camp in uh, initially at, at uh, uh, Trentham but then I was assigned to the Army Service Corps and uh, we went to Palmerston North and the golf course of Palmerston North, Hokowit, down by the river, we uh, was turned into a camp, and uh, poor old golfers must have bitten there, because <laughs> we had we had uh, uh, all sorts of barriers put up on the golf course, and that sort of thing. but. Uh, Anyway, but they still had it in mind, of course. My, I still had my name for the airport, and I'd been accepted virtually, you see. So, anyway, we went on there, and then the uh, Americans arrived, and we were—we, I was in the Army Service Corps, so we had trucks, and so we were—we were, we were uh, immediately well, before the Americans actually arrived. We were engaged in transporting prefabricated huts from Patoni up the Hut Valley and over the Haywoods. I don't know whether you know where the Haywoods yep, yep. crossing it, down to Param uh, yeah, yeah, and along the coast to Mackay's Crossing. Yeah, I don't know where you know. There's a, the old camper, it'll still be there. We chartered all this stuff. We could manage two trips a day over there, and we were billeted in the, in the, uh, uh, we were billeted in the surf club at Paikokariki, and on the floor there, you know, you had your paddle house down on the floor, and of course we used to, uh, we used to go swimming, uh, to at the end of the day, when we I did two trips a day from the cut right over there, and uh, 
So that was, it was a great time. I regard those as really great days for the army. And uh, anyway, I think I was still there. Yes, we are still there. Still counting, we cut another lot of the material to uh, the golf course at Parapram. And uh, and then I was I received notification that I was to report to uh, tr to uh, yes I was report I'd be accepted I must be I'd, I'd be accepted and I was working there and it all happened very quickly. Oh yes, I was assigned to Palmer to the uh, Masterton. Oh yeah. Yeah, I was assigned to Masterton. Uh, to uh, I was attached to uh, uh, it was a a, a uh, uh, guard duty type of thing on Masterton Airport. Was well, that the aerodrome defence unit? Yeah, aerodrome defence unit. That's right. Yeah, yeah, I was aerodrome defence unit, and so I was assigned to Masterton. We had a hut. We had camps there. And we lived in huts there, yeah. and we guarded the plane tonight. They had a squadron of kitty hawks arrived from the states, and uh, we guarded these kitty hawks at night and. Uh, dreamed our dreams and stroked their sleep lines. <laughs> and, uh, and in the daytime we did, oh, we had work to do to improve the grounds and, and uh, marching, we marched for miles in the, I know those tracks around Masterton. Yeah, so we were pretty fit, I can tell you. And then quite suddenly, uh, you suddenly got word from a mate or something. Hey, bitch, they called me bitch. Hey, bitch, you're, you're on the notice board, you're posted. And so I went in straight away to have a look. Yes, I had, I had about two hours to pack my gear and uh, get on the, get ready for, picked up by truck. And uh, I was in Rotorua. Right. Yeah. Yep. Rotorua was the, what they call the ITW, the, isn't this the initial training wing? So that was all right, it was largely a, a medical thing there, and that was nearly my downfall. I had ear, my ear problem, so we had the decompression chamber. I hated the very word. It was a great big cylinder, I think it was a converted sewage tank. Uh, it was a huge steel cylinder, long, and had two rows of seats in it, and it had a seat at the end for the doctor, and it had windows at the side you could look through, and it had a sealed door at the end. They bolted that shut. So you went into this damn thing, and you sat down there, and you had a oxygen mask for each seat, only about eight seats in it, I think, or ten, I can't remember now. And uh, they gave you a little booklet, 
strapped on your knee and a pen, and uh, you you did a little sum to uh, a bit of mathematics, and then they pumped the air out, and you had your oxygen mask on, and then you took your oxygen mask off, yeah. and. Uh, it's a curious effect. You don't notice so much the fact that you can't breathe any air in. What you do notice is that the funny things that start happening. I start to sweat like a pig, and uh, then after a while, it affects some people quicker than others, and guys would tip over off the seat, you see, and the, the doctor would slam a mask on him. But I didn't tip over, but I I did the sums. You're supposed to do the sums again on a different set of figures, and I I thought I'd done quite well with these figures. And later on, when I saw it afterwards, I couldn't believe it. I had signed my name. You signed your name at the end after. I'd signed my name with a whole lot of ends on the end of it. I had no idea I'd done that. And the, the thing was to show you what a dangerous thing it was to neglect your oxygen masks when you were flying, you see. Yeah. It, it's an insidious thing. You think you're smart. Actually, you see, intoxication is the same thing. Yeah. The, your, the, your oxygen is reduced, your oxygen intake. So anyway, then, then you come down, you see, they can bring the pressure back in my ears. My eustachian tubes from your throat into your middle ear, I had apparently a soft, sloppy type of back to my throat, and they just blocked up straight away, and of course it came down, the pain got terrific, so they took it back up again, and uh, then they had to... They had to. Uh, they assigned me to a, a second go at the decom chamber, uh, and uh, I was worried to hell because I was really set on getting into the airport. And uh, I had my second go at the decom chamber. It was worse than the first, just about. And I was absolutely down and depressed. And I was, this was after, after uh, 24 hours after I'd had it or something, I was called to the doctor's office. And he said, Benjamin, he said, we haven't got the results of your decompression, last decompression, how'd you go? And I said, fine, no trouble. That's what I said, and that's all I had to say. And he said, okay, ticked, and I was in. Then I had a problem, so I thought, well, now I'd be mad to bomb a, command, bomb a commander at 20,000 feet. Fighters went from 20,000 to 1,000 in a few seconds, and they would have just blown my drums to pieces. But Coastal Command never went very high, you see. You were studying for, for uh, submarines, and we cruised at 2,000 feet, 
that sort of thing. So I put coastal command down and my navigation was quite good. Uh, my marks on navigation were quite good and so I was, and at that time the uh, war had progressed in Europe to the extent there were the submarines that were uh, destroying the convoys crossing from America to England and so there was a big demand for coastal command. It all worked for me perfectly. and. Uh, so I, I went and the next thing I was in uh, Harewood, I, I went to Harewood and uh, Tiger Moth and I learned to fly a Tiger Moth and, and then of course some of us were sent straight to Canada, some of went on in New Zealand for the uh, faster planes but I was a, went to Canada on the Matsonia, which was the American line, and uh, left Auckland and we went non-stop and you didn't even see anything on the way. They went a zigzag type of the sh ship, zigzagged all the time. And uh, next thing we were going under the Golden Gate Bridge. Yeah, what a excitement, yeah. And here's this Matsonia that had a couple of masts, you know, for the aerials. And you reckon, oh, they're going to get caught on that bridge. <laughs> no, they weren't. It's just the way we looked. That was all under the Golden Gate Bridge. And then we went to the Oakland Inn. That's the northern end of San Francisco Bay. And uh, we disembarked there, straight on the trains. And... Uh, went north by train then, through Portland and Oregon and yeah, to Vancouver and uh, then we were allowed off. They had us over there then, they, they knew that we wouldn't want to get lost. So uh, we were allowed uh, freedom for a short while but we had to be back at the, at the uh, railway station by a certain time or something. And uh, so we, several of us got a taxi and said, show us some of the sights. And they, it was, Vancouver's a beautiful city. It's high up and it's on a big sound that comes in there. Yeah, so we had a great little drive around and, uh, and then we went back onto the train and through the Rockies and down to Edmonton. And, uh, uh, on the plains at Edmonton and uh, they had a big manning depot there and they had uh, partly trained airmen from Britain. They'd come over from Britain because they couldn't train them there, only train a, a limited number. And there was Australians, New Zealanders, British, even Jamaicans, a few people from the colonies, you know, and uh, we were all there and then we were dispersed out to our training stations and I, I was sent to uh, Brantford, Ontario, which is right across Canada really, from the west towards the east. Ontario is fairly close to the eastern side.
and Brentford there, and we uh, you arrive at Brentford, they never lost any time, you arrive there with your gear, next thing you're told to line up, and, and next thing uh, uh, an Aussie, a short, fair Aussie fire, uh, flying officer came along, he said, and I was assigned to him, you see. He said, OK, we're going flying in half an hour. And that's how quick it was, yeah. And so we were, I was introduced to the ensign, the, the twin engine ensign aircraft. It was a special Canadian built one, like the ensign, the British ensign was what they called the flying glass house. That's the one we had here with all the windows on the side. Ours had cut out a lot of windows and we just had the front windows and one window at the back because we didn't use, we were just learned to fly them, that was all. And uh, so uh, I had my turn at Branford, Branford and uh, I had this Aussie instructor and uh, he was short-tempered. He hated, he hated the idea of instructing. You see, he'd been, Jode, we call it Jode when you when you forced to, you know, you're attributed a position and you Jode into it, and he didn't want to be Jode into instructing, and he used to get wild at times, and then, however, we went we got along reasonably well. Lots of guys had to have their instructors changed. They just couldn't take some of the instructors. They were so bad tempered. And uh, but Howie Pennell was. He, uh, I felt sorry for him. He was obviously a fighter pilot. That's what he should have been. But he was obviously a good pilot, and that's why he'd been held back. Yeah. And uh, anyway, finally the final test came and. The squadron leader on the on the station tested each of us, and I passed quite well. And uh, when I when Howie uh, got his students, those of his students at a part, he was a changed man entirely. He, uh, well, he was so enthusiastic and so excited. Call me Howie. And uh, we were pals straight away, yeah? And you realise then how much these guys put into, you know? They really want you to, want you to succeed. I suppose it's really, a, to some extent, a reflection on their ability as an instructor. So, uh, Oh yes, well, next thing we were going up to Northern Ontario where Howie had a, a girlfriend up there and we shot up her place and yeah, <laughs> it was all different. And uh, and I was uh, assigned to, because I was I got above average with navigation, I was assigned to uh, a course at at uh, Prince Edward Island, it was an advanced navigation course, and we didn't fly the aircraft there. We were pure navigators, 
and uh, we had staff pilots flew over at Anson's again and uh, so uh, I got, uh, I think I came third in the whole course there. I really liked the navigation and uh, so uh, we went off to England then. Okay. Yeah. In the uh, Ile de France, the old Ile they called it. It was a big, big liner, but it was an old one. And uh, we were jam-packed with, so with uh, servicemen, you know. Yeah. And we zigzagged our way over there and finally arrived without incident. <laughs> in Scotland, the, uh, Scotland, and we disembarked in trains down to to Brighton on the southern coast of England, but we uh, were interrupted on the way because the bombers had wrecked the line on the way, and yeah, there'd been a air raid the night before, and uh, so we were delayed while they changed, we changed trains. And uh, and we arrived at Brighton, and it was totally different there, of course, because we were in the war zone. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You had to be careful not to show any lights at night, and and uh, sirens would go, and you'd be down in the cellar as quick as you could, and you'd hear the bombs falling. You could hear the crunch. Yeah. So what what um, what year was that that you got there? What month and year? And this would be '44. All right. I think so. Yeah, '44. Okay. Yeah, because I did nine months uh, actual operations. Yeah. So yeah. And uh, yeah. So anyway, uh, we arrived there. And uh, then we were crewed up, and uh, I was went to meet my skipper. He was a New Zealander, and he was a short fellow, Archie Holly. And uh, we were the same. Uh, he'd been a sergeant pilot. He just got his commission. He uh, so Archie, I was almost senior to him because I had my commission at graduation and he'd just been given his, which had already given the captaincy of a Sunderland. And uh, so uh, we we hit it off well, Archie and I. We, well, of course, you had to be sensible. You're going to be, you know, everybody under stress or something can get a little bit snappy at times. And, and ignore that sort of thing. So uh, we crewed up and uh, and we went to Scotland and did an OTU at All Ness in Scotland. And during that time we flew to, the furthest north I went was to the Shetland Islands and we landed at Salomo in the Shetlands. So that's as far north as I've been. <laughs> and that's in the Sunderland? In Sunderland, yeah. We were on Sunderland's entirely on the OTU. Yeah. yeah. We were on Sunderland's, uh, Mark III Sunderland's. 
and by that time the Mark V Sunderland had been produced. Once America got into the war, the uh, Pratt & Whitney motors were readily available and they were more powerful than the, than the, uh, the Bristol, the Peggy 18s we call them, Peggy's, Bristol Pegasus. And uh, the Mark V Sunderland was a better performer in many ways, yeah. And so how many people were in the crew? Ten. Ten? Ten, yeah. That's a big crew. Yeah, it is, yeah. We had, you see, there's the two pilots, and they were also fully qualified navigators. We were fully qualified, and we had a navigator as well. And he was did 90% of the navigation. But every now and again, I'd be directed by the skipper to go and do the navigation for a while, and Johnny would mutter like hell because I didn't wasn't as tidy he was, yeah. His printing was immaculate. <laughs> bloody, yeah, what do you call them? Bloody bus drivers. <laughs> and, uh, no, but we, uh, we were good, we got along well. We had, there's Johnny, the navigator, Skipper and I, and uh, there was two wireless operators, they were New Zealanders, uh, Frank Ross and, uh, and Bill Johnson, the two Johnsons, you see. We had a, uh, Johnny Johnson, our navigator, and uh, Bill Johnson was one of our wireless operators, and they were also air gunners, you see. Yep, yep. They did turn of the air gunners. And then we had two straight air gunners, and they, uh, uh, we, that was uh, uh, Titch Page, who was a, a uh, British air gunner, and oh now, gosh me, I never thought I'd ever forget them. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, oh, it did the moment, it just escaped me. And then two engineers as well. Right. And they were also air gunners. So uh, there was, there was uh, uh, oh gosh, you know I've got a near blank problem now. Two uh, <coughs> engineers, Ben Matthews, and Titch, Titch Page, I mentioned Titch Page, didn't I? Yeah, he was the second engineer. Yeah. So the air, straight air gunners were, oh, I bet not. I'll get mixed up all the time. <laughs> I suppose it's not important. But, uh, <coughs> so there was ten of us, and then, you know, if a, if a uh, Sunderland was taken out of service for, for uh, maintenance, and you had a crew around, so you might find a couple of guys who'd come with you as well. So you can have 12 of you, up to 15 on board. Right. Yeah. There's plenty of room for them, I suppose. Hey. Plenty of room on board. Oh, there's tons of room, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You've been through the Sunderland, have you? Yeah, you yeah. took me through it one day. Oh, yeah. Oh. A few years yeah. back. Yeah, that would have been, yeah. <coughs> yeah. 
So did you have a radar operator as well? Oh yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Sorry, I forgot about that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <coughs> we had uh, Frank Ross, oh, he was a radar, a radar gunner, radar operator gunner, Frank, Frank Ross and uh, Bill, Bill Johnson. Yeah, there was Bill Johnson and Frank Ross. They were wireless air gunners. Yeah. Uh, that's what you call them, wireless air gunners. They took their turn on the turret as well. And then you had your, your radar operator, which is a little Scottish guy, Red Kerr. He was, he could also man the turret, but he was the radar guy. And, uh, and you could also, uh, the other wireless operators could take a turn on the radar. They weren't expert. Uh, we, during the 10 months I was on the, uh, actually on operations, we uh, did the, well, we were sent, of course, we, we didn't go on operations straight from OTU there, we were sent by ship to uh, Freetown oh, yes. on West Africa in Sierra Leone. And uh, there we, uh, we were uh, we were sent by ship. The whole crew was sent by ship, including the skipper, and uh, we reported Freetown. And Freetown uh, was the home of 490 Squadron, which was New Zealand Squadron, but it was also the main maintenance uh, centre on the on the African coast. So all the squadrons had their planes done at Freetown, so we simply uh, arrived there and then we picked up a plane that just had its maintenance and we flew round to Lagos in Nigeria, which is over a thousand miles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, you don't cross the land, of course, it'd been quicker than that, but it'd be madness if you had, you know, if you obviously, if you had engine trouble, you stand a good chance and water over the sea, but you had no chance over land. We did sneak across the bottom sometimes, yeah. And it would be quite interesting to see the animals as we cut across them. <laughs> but uh, we were, it really was sensible to be over water as much as you could. So we arrived at Lagos and, uh, and Signed in there, we had an RAF, uh, an RAF CO there, and he was a, you know, pompous, pompous Englishman. But <laughs> 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 well, we got along really well with him, but, you know, he can't beat the colonials. <laughs> <laughs> So what was the squadron that you joined there? 270. Oh, yeah. Yeah, 270 squadron. 490 was the New Zealand one at Freetown. Right, yeah. And so from there you were doing patrols out in the Yeah, right out we get, right across the Atlantic sometimes, to a short distance of South American continent. Uh, we did 12-hour uh, flights 
and uh, we, of course, we had we had uh, meals and on board. We had full cooking facilities, and uh, so and we also took even the skipper took time after he, after I'd been with him for a while. He didn't go. He took his time and had to lie down sometimes and left me in charge. But uh, there was. Weather was our main thing that we had to deal with. These bloody lines for hell. We uh, once we were. You think you're hit by lightning, but you're not really. The lightning apparently hit the water immediately behind the tail of the sunlight. So the rear gunner said he was so demoralised the skipper called him forward and uh, left the turret empty for a while because he, he was really shattered. And, uh, well, you see, the, all the wiring and inside the cabin, the molten wire flew everywhere. And, you know, the induction yeah. was terrific. Yeah. The compasses were ruined, everything. Yeah, so we had to get back home again without a compass. And, yeah. Tricky. So we we didn't have enemy action, but we had the weather action, and it could be pretty worrying sometimes. Yeah, but we survived. They were good old engines. They kept going. You see, they were unaffected by these electrical wires because they are totally. Each engine is totally dependent on its own electric. Uh, you know, the magnetos and that sort of thing. It's so uh, we, we, were, we were, this time we were, I thought we were hit by lightning, but it wasn't apparently. But uh, even then the engines just kept going. Right. Yep. Uh, and when you were on the squadron doing these patrols, were you in the Mark 3s or Mark 5s? We were in Mark 3s down there. You see, there was no Mark, the five Mark 5s started to appear. One or two Mark V started to appear, but not to our squadron. Right. 490 got it. Oh, I think they got a Mark V. No, the Mark Vs were, were concentrated up around the British, what you call the Western approaches, because that's where the biggest uh, activity was, the anti-submarine activity of Western approaches. Yeah. Our purpose was to try to stop submarines, try to stop submarines from from endangering the shipping going round. But as the war finished, and got close to finish, the Japanese were still in the war, and the submarines started to go, try to get to Japan, and they were going round in Africa. You see, so that's when we had to, yeah. But we were say one night we carried out an, an attack. Uh, we had a strong radar. You see, they, 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 submarines really only uh, ran on the surface in, at night so as they could charge their batteries. Otherwise, they kept it at least at, at periscope depth, I suppose. 
So uh, at night time, most of our patrols were night. We'd go off at dusk and come back at dawn. Yeah. And, uh, and that's why we had some of the most amazing lightning. <laughs> yeah. So and that, that case where the German submarines trying to get to Japan. Yeah. But the but the Germ is that just before the surrender or? Yes. Oh right. So yeah. you could you could legally attack them. Yeah. Oh yeah. But, but if they if if it was after the war, but there was all these Nazis trying to get out, what happens there? Because. Uh, well, of course, the Japanese, you see, and the Germans were allies. Yeah, you, yeah. you really regard them as allies. Yeah. So we were perfectly entitled, while the Japanese war was on, to get German, particularly if they were going to help Japan. Yeah. Yeah, yeah definitely. Mm -hmm. So you actually made an attack on... Yes, we did the whole thing. We got this, this strong uh, echo. And of course, we immediately switched our radar off because that was one of the problems. The German boat, uh, we were bouncing these radar off, they had uh, receivers that knew, they knew when they were being detected, when they were getting a radar signal. So they'd promptly dive. So what we, our, our uh, drill was, as soon as we got a, an echo, switched the radar off, yeah, switched it off and it took the notice of the position on the screen, see the radar screen is a spot of light as your, as your echo and you immediately get its bearing from where you are and, and you switch it off and then you start navigate to the bear to where you, and then when you think you're almost there you put the radar on again and hopefully it's right in front of you, or very close. And that gives the enemy the minimum opportunity to, to know they're being detected. And uh, so we, and of course you go down to, you go down to 100 feet off the water or 150 feet off the water, and then you put your flares out. And there's a guy goes back to the flare hatch at the back of the sunlit and he's got the flares there and he puts them as a flare chute goes into that hatch and you drop the flare down the chute and as it goes out the bottom the it's triggered and there's a brilliant light. Lights up the whole world around you and uh, of course ideally uh, you would see your target ahead of you uh, if it was there. But, uh, you know, we thought we, we'd done everything dead right there. But uh, we did see a smoothish piece in the sea. And for all we knew, it could well have been one. Anyway, Art said, right, we've been here for bloody ten months, so we've dropped a stick of depth charges on this this piece where he suspected he might have gone and they blew up beautifully the, the guys in the rear turret said yeah we got some great columns of, of water going up there but nothing came to the surface and of course you always notified the navy and they always came out to have a look you know and uh, no we were not credited with a 
kill, I'm afraid. <laughs> that was our only opportunity, really. Now, you mentioned before about having food on board and, and a galley. What sort of food were you cooking on board on a flight? Uh, we had pretty... Uh, yeah, we, uh, we were able to fry bacon and that sort of stuff. We, we had the... Our cooker had two... Uh, two hot plates on top in an oven and uh, and there were we we had hot meals to some extent yeah, yeah. we had potatoes and that sort of thing yeah a decent meal okay yeah yep and those flights you go out and do maybe up to 12 hour um, patrols then when you got back, how long did you have off before you had to go and do the next one? Oh, you'd, you'd probably have a, probably a week, just about, several days anyway, yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. And what did you do on your downtime? Well, we'd practice very often, you know, you'd, you'd have uh, bombing in the lagoon, and a towed target, or a launch pulling a target, and you'd, you'd be sweeping across this target and had little practice bombs that made a puff of, they were, they were only about this long, and they were shaped proper bombs, and uh, they exploded and they made a puff of white smoke, and, and uh, you'd mark the position of the explosion to the target and where the whether you would have got a, an effective uh, an effective attack attack. And what about um, you know what was Lagos like to live there and, and you know just. Well, yeah, we 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 had our own barracks and everything, and uh, within our own barracks, which uh, was just a British type of thing. And you went down the, the street, and if you wanted to, and you'd immediately be accosted by these natives. And we were master, yeah, master. And uh, and I, uh, the English sort of ignored them, but we, uh, I think New Zealanders and probably Australians too, were inclined to particularly our houseboys, the guys who made our beds and that. The one thing we didn't even do was make our beds. We had servants to do that. And I used to engage them in, in conversation and ask them about their, their family. And they used to love to talk. They felt as though they were important. And yeah, what sort of family have we got? Picking in these really kids and, and their wives and yeah and we used to pull their legs about their sex and all this sort of thing <laughs> and they used to have a laugh you know and they'd really laugh and I think they it made a big difference I mean it was stupid this ignoring them because they were natives but of course you see we 
were different. The British people just didn't have any contact with neighbours, right. na natives. Right. Right, true, yeah. And they considered them to be just animals, virtually, yeah. Did, did any other crews on your squadron have any success? No, no, no. In fact, we were the only ones that had that attack, and right. believe me, we got ribbed for that. I have bombed a poor bloody whale. <laughs> oh yes, we got hell for that. But I, I guess the fact that you weren't getting those contacts, that was the success in itself, because it meant the Germans weren't coming into your area. Yeah, and, yeah. And getting through. Oh yes, they knew, of course, that the Atlantic was, was thoroughly surveyed from the air all the time. Oh yes, they knew that. And I think that it must be most unpleasant for the crews, long time being submerged because of the danger of dare, daring not be uh, up on the surface. Yeah. And when the war ended, what happened to you then? Well, we went back, we uh, took our uh, aircraft back to, to England, we arrived, and we went, stopped at Gibraltar, or we stopped at one place, uh, Dakar, and then on to Gibraltar. No, we didn't stop at Gibraltar, we passed Gibraltar, went straight on to England, we had enough gas to go straight on, we landed at Southampton, and uh, we, uh, I think we just spent the night there, I don't know, it might have been a couple of nights. Anyway, we had to deliver our aircraft to uh, Stranraer in Scotland, and we took it up there, went up the Bristol Channel, and, and up to Stranraer, and what a sight. There was Sunderland all over the place. The water was, they were anchored all over the water and they were on the land. Sunderland's, goodness me, I think I counted them at the time. And, uh, and they were all just wrecked. Yeah. Although, you see, New Zealand after war bought, seven, it was 17, wasn't it, we bought? Yeah. And you see, they would have been there, they would have been near new, you see because they were producing these all the time, and they'd be the near new ones, had hardly any hours on them at all. Yeah. Mark fives. And of course, when I got back home again, I went onto the farm, and uh, uh, I, you know why? Oh yes, Dad was employed me on the farm, yeah, for a start. That's what I did for a start, and uh, and uh, I I yes, I balloted for a farm and won the one next door. I'd no sooner done that than bugger me, New Zealand bought seventeen Sunderland, and uh, you had a, you had a. Uh, uh, all us old buggers that knew a bit about them, they had camps every year. And I could have, 
I could have gone for, I think, about a month or something, and I'd have had great fun back on the Sunderland again, because I did miss them after a while, and here I was, I had had a farm to look after, so I'd, I'd ruined that opportunity. Anyway, I, I was married, and I had a family, and no regrets there, we've had a wonderful, Wonderful family. We lost one boy, tragically. Yeah. He 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 followed in the old man's footsteps, and he got his pilot's license. And uh, he uh, where worked for a top dressing company here in New Zealand, but he couldn't get a flying job, so. A uh, bloke from Rhodesia came over, from South Africa rather, and, uh, and Russell had a word with him and said, what's the chance of, of a flying job? He said, he said, I've got one New Zealander. He said, you over there, I'll have you in an aeroplane in no time. So Russell panned in his resignation to the Thames aerial people here who'd been driving loader for and off he went to South Africa and he was having a wonderful time in. They were true to Red Oldman was the uh, manager of the company and the owner of the company I think. And he already had one New Zealand pilot and there was forty planes or something he had in a very big way. And uh, so he true to his word he uh, intended to he put Russell in an airplane and uh, he was enjoying himself very much uh, and he found the job very successful, was doing very well and one day they flew very low you see to spray these crops and uh, he, I, I think he must have been diverted, his attention must have been diverted. Something must have happened. And uh, he hit these power lines. Normally, as his manager, who came over to New Zealand afterwards, his manager said, he said, we've all hit power lines, clipped them and they just break. And he said, this one wrapped around the tail of the aircraft, went up in the air, was heavily loaded, pulled two power, power poles out of the ground, yeah, and then smashed down on the ground. Sad, bloody sad. Sorry to hear that. Yeah. Just the way fate works. Yeah, it is. Particularly in top dressing. Yeah. As you say, I've talked to a lot of top dressing pilots and they all seem to say they've hit power lines at some stage. Yeah. And got yeah, away so with it. Red Osman said, yeah, we've all clipped power line. Mm. Yeah. How did you get involved with the Motet um, Sunderland? Yeah, well, I, I, we were, we moved up here from the farm and uh, up to Auckland Way and I uh, went out to Motet and I was quite impressed out there, and I thought, well, you know, we, I, I, we hadn't. Nolene was, she had, a, my wife was, had a little jewellery making 
business with gemstone jewellery and uh, I thought I'd like something to keep me busy. I was going back to the farm and helping Craig out, our boy on the farm, and uh, occasionally, but I thought I'd like to go. I went out to Motat and I said, uh, you know, oh yes, we, we wanted to be volunteers we can get. So uh, our Wednesday was the volunteers' day, and uh, so I went out there regularly. What, what year did you start um, at Motet as a volunteer? Oh, goodness me. No, that's something I wouldn't be able to tell you yeah. off the cuff. It's hard enough recall, recalling everything. Yeah, yeah. No, I can't do it. But you were, you were there for quite a, a number yeah, of years. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, for quite a while. And in that time you were doing well, a lot of work on the... Yeah, on the Sunland we... Uh, we... Oh, we did a lot of work on the wings uh, and uh, painted the interior and, you know, we, we smartened her up very nicely. Yeah. And the, the instrument panel, we, we uh, there'd been instruments pinched out of it and so we got all the, we got, we had, obviously, a, a pool of instruments in Motat where they take them out of aircraft. So we were able to get the right instruments back in the sun again. So it turned out and we painted it and gave uh, it a coat of paint. Interior painting was. And. Uh, no, it, it didn't quite sound alright, yeah, Sunla. It is. Yeah. Uh, on the inside, it looks like it would have done back in the back in its service days. Yeah, now, it, it should do because we did paint the interior. I don't think the exterior was painted. It might have been since. I don't think they have yet. They're, they're quite close to to getting to that stage, but they're going to, you know, finish off all the bits yeah. and the, all the flaps and things at the moment and then they'll do the full repaint. Oh, yeah, yeah. But they're doing marvellous work on it now. It's, considering that, you know, it's been sitting outside for, what, 50, well, probably all of its life it's sat outside, hasn't it? 70-odd years. Yeah. Yeah, so it's doing all right. Yeah, they were made, they had this, the particular aluminium they used on them was, uh, anti-corrosive special right. aluminium. It had some sort of an alloy and uh, I don't know what it was but they didn't corrode easily. Right. And they, of course they salt water, you wouldn't have, they wouldn't last any time at all if you didn't have them protected, yeah. Did you have a little team working with you on it, or was it just you by yourself? No, well, you, no, you had assistance, but by yourself mainly. It's a sort of by yourself job. You, it's a fiddly job. Yeah. And uh, yeah, down below the floor is where the main deterioration occurs in them, because they do get. 
I take on a little bit of water all the time, and uh, you know you might. You very seldom did you inspect the building. One of the first jobs the second pilot does when he gets on board is go from bow to stern and lift all the floor panels and inspect each bilge, you see, all the way back. And he always found a bit of water in the bilges, yeah. There's always a little bit in there. And if they were a bit too much, of course, you had to pump them out. You couldn't take off with them. Yeah. Actually, tell me about that pre-flight check on the aircraft. With your pre-flight, would you have to get in a boat and go around it, or...? No, no, yeah, to some extent, yes, you did, before you got on board. You had a look at the certain things you looked for outside. And, uh, you know, you looked at the wing, wing tip floats, were they good? And nothing tied up. The ailerons you'd have to have a look at, make sure the connections were all there. But, uh, and of course then the first thing you do when you get in the cockpit is test ailerons and and the elevator and that sort of thing. And uh, the main problem usually was uh, the builders. The rest of it was pretty good. They lasted well. And did you have a, um, the same ground crew working on your aircraft, like was there the same people assigned to that aircraft each time or? No, no, that wouldn't be right, no. They, it had to be flexible. Right. Yeah, there were certain ground guys you, you thought were better than others, but uh, no, you couldn't, you couldn't uh, book one particular bloke for your aircraft. And I've no doubt many of Skipper would have liked to do that. He'd have a lot of confidence in one. In a bloke, but did, did you um, did, was it normally sort of uh, were the ground crew British guys, or were there was there a mix of Commonwealth guys as well? Or? No, no, there was uh, New Zealand ground crew too. Yeah, okay. yeah. There were guys you see who who went to go to war had had aspirations to fly and found that their medical wouldn't permit it and uh, so they ended up by being ground crew right. and quite happy to be that as a second ch chance, yeah. So how many Sunderlands were there in your squadron? Uh, I would say it was really usually about 17 or 18 or something like that, okay. yeah. And when you all flew back to England, did you go together as a, as a squadron? No, 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 we went, did our own thing, yep. yeah, no, no. What's the biggest formation you got into then? Oh, usually about three or four, yeah, oh yeah. That'd be quite fun with those huge aircraft beside you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, uh, hope they didn't get too bloody close. Yeah. When it came to dropping the bombs, who was the who was doing the bomb aiming and and doing the actual dropping? Yeah, well, the skipper did. Yeah. Okay. He had the he had the uh, 
bomb controls down beside him there, you see, and the second pilot's over there. So the skipper sets, he decides to do one, three, five, and seven or something like that, and he switches those particular switches on, and that livens that particular carrier, you see, and uh, then he's got the fuel, he's got the fuse and safe switch. He puts them on fuse or safe, if he's practised it as safe. And uh, normally he wouldn't drop a depth charge, so just just for practice, uh, uh, just just to test, you wouldn't drop a depth charge. But uh, he's got his fuses there, and uh, I think, if I remember right, there the fuse and safe switch was a single switch and made them all fuse or all safe. Yeah, but then if they weren't selected, they wouldn't drop. And uh, yeah, that was about all to it, I think. And uh, I know we used to... I'm just trying to think of an incident and how it happened. We were down, we were on the water in the bomb room. I don't know how it happened. One of the bomb carriers, the wasn't, it, uh, the, the hook wasn't engaged properly anyway. Archie Colley, my skipper, the bomb dropped in his hand, 250 pounds in his arms, yeah, he was nuggety and he, he stopped it, and, but it went to the floor, but he stopped it, Jesus, lucky it didn't break his back. Or, Did you ever do any rescues of people in the water? Uh, we dropped, I think we dropped a life raft once. Yeah, I think we dropped a life raft once. I can't remember now. And we also, we got an echo once and uh, we followed this echo and there was a life raft, a large one and nobody is, and we wonder what the story was, you know. You can't help wondering what the story was. Obviously, the, it had been launched, and uh, why wasn't there anybody in it? And you see, if you've read, read the book, it's worth reading. The Cruel Sea by Nicholas Monserrat. I've heard of it, I haven't heard yeah. of it. Yeah. Uh, he, he gives a good description. He was a naval man, but uh, you know, getting a life raft with skeletons in it. And, and you think of this, well, we used to fly for 12 hours and nothing but ocean. And just think of how easy it was to miss something. And you realise then that 
Just think of those poor buggers. Well, I can't think of anything else to ask you, Mac. Um, is there any other things that come to mind? Or? No, not really. Uh, you know, you think back on your days and and you think, well, the war was pretty easy on me, really. Although I was fortunate enough to be involved in it, you know, I wasn't just a spectator, I was involved, but it could have been a lot worse for me. Yeah. You never struck any um, problem with your ears again? No, 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 my ears, no. They, I just, they're still the same, you know, yeah. if I go up in an airplane. Right. Of course, I've, I uh, built, built my airplane, that, that one there, I built it. This, oh, yeah, this oh, one, right. This one here. Yeah, yeah. Great. Yeah. Your own little flying boat. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah I built them a woolshed. Brilliant. <coughs> Excellent. Yep, and that's it coming into Tikoa Airfield in the Waikato. Oh, yeah, yeah. And somebody took that photo. And uh, yeah, I had it for a while and we had a lot of fun on it, but then I, I had two farms. Most of my brother had decided he didn't want to farm, so I took Dad's farm over as well. And uh, so I was very busy. And so I couldn't get the use out of the aircraft I would like to. So I sold it to a guy who lived down at Tuatapri. That's right. on the south coast of the South Island. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he got down there and, and it, he didn't get the wheels locked up properly. One wheel, he got his wheel as a handle inside. He pulled it back and it was a straight out pivot on the uh, axle went through there. Each one was separate, a stub axle. Yep. And he lifted it up and pulled the handle down and locked it down there and the wheel lay alongside the aircraft for water landing. And, uh, and he didn't have it properly locked and it fell down. And when he bounced, it fell down until the next time he bounced, it flipped over. And uh, it wasn't too badly damaged. So uh, he got, got uh, another airplane to lift it, I think. And I took it back and he didn't have the knowledge or the, even the incentive to repair it. So he sold it and a guy up Nelson Way heard about it. And of course I'd been landing in most of these places. So they knew the aircraft. And uh, so, uh, so Nelson, he, he wanted it, so he bought it. Yep. And uh, he repaired it and in doing so, he altered the tail fin a bit. He uh, fared it forward onto the fuselage a bit for the sweep. Oh, yes. Otherwise, it was much the same. And uh, he was flying at last. I'd love to know whether it was still flying or not. Yeah. I don't know. ZKDJH. Yeah. What kind of plane was it? What was uh, his name? What kind of... What, what kind of plane? What was his name? 
the talk is oh, yes, it's a kingfisher. Kingfisher, okay. And a guy named Earl Anderson in America, he was an airline pilot, and he conceived the idea, and I heard about it, and so I wrote to him. Right. And he wrote back, he was very good, and he wrote back, told me all about it, and uh, so uh, I said I want to buy it. So he, uh, he had it for sale. And, so, uh, yes. I'm wondering, did he pack it up to send it out? I think so. Anyway, I took it to air, to uh, Aerospace Industries in Auckland, and they assembled it. No, wait a minute! I'm I'm raving. <laughs> I built the I built the whole fuselage. Right. No, no, no. There's what I imported was the engine. Ah, right. Yeah, I wanted an engine, and Aerospace Industries had engines there. And that again, I'm raving because I didn't import it. I went to Aerospace Industries, and they had this O two three five, Lycoming, yeah. and uh, they had them going for two and a half thousand. Well, that was marvellous buy, yeah. and so I bought that. The whole thing cost me ten and a half thousand, and and uh, I sold it for twelve and a half when I sold it. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> so the wings. I went to Aerospace Industries in Hamilton. Had a pair of wings. Uh, on, Parked up on the roof, okay. and uh, they Piper Cub wings. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Piper Cub wings, and I said, "What do you want for them?" Oh, I bought them for eleven hundred dollars, I think, and they uh, got them re. Uh, you know, they were just uh, framed of the right. wing, and I got them covered. They cost me a little. I think the guy covered them for six hundred dollars, and. Uh, and so the rest of it, uh, the aerospace industry welded up. I didn't tackle any welding myself because tubular welding and aircraft welding, you should be licensed. If I'd have known, I, uh, you know, if I'd have done it myself, I probably would never have gotten a permit to fly. Uh, you have to do things right with the air department. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, brilliant. So. And it was easy to fly. I just put on my airstrip. I had a steep airstrip on the farm. I soon found out how to manage it and uh, rolled up and the business the top where we top dressing pilots uh, filled the planes up. So I could, I could land on the farm, but I needed a, a uh, Accommodation for it. The guy out of Pew Pew had a room in his hangar, and so I used to keep it out there. Right. And uh, I used it, but didn't didn't get the opportunity. With the two farms, you know, I was too too tied up most of the time. Yeah. So I felt I wasn't getting the use of it. I used to take it out to the, to the beach too. And I landed on the beach, and uh, and uh, 
course, the big, the big, if uh, the big problem with landing on the beach is what condition the sand's in. So we had a system. You were, you went into a position where you were going to land, got the wheels on the sand, and then kicked your rudder while you're still going at almost flying speed. You kicked your rudder back and forth like that to stiff your feet. Oh, right. You stiff the wheels, yeah. and then you took off, and then you came around again, had a look at the sand, very low down, of course. And if the sand, if you could still detect sand, scattered on the surface, you knew it was safe. Right. If, the, if it all dissolved in, no, right. keep yeah. away. Yeah, too damp. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I had a lot of fun with it. But, uh, you know, time goes by. Yeah, yeah. So when did you give up flying? What, what year? Oh, I haven't flown now for be a good ten and be more than ten years I think. Right. Yeah. Quite a bit more than ten years probably. Yeah. Um, at the beginning when I asked, I don't think you said, uh, what was your date of birth? 29th of April 1922. 22, okay. Well, so I'm 93 now, I yeah. think. Yeah. And you don't look a day over 80. <laughs> <laughs> no, I've, I've, I've quite been lucky, really. I have, I have really been lucky. Today, recently, my legs are, uh, you know, a bit wobbly now. Yeah. I, I had new to, got pneumonia a while ago, and and I really went very low, and uh, I haven't got my strength back properly, and I'm hoping it will come back for my legs, but it may not, you right. see. Uh, probably old enough now, and they're just not going to get that vigour again. Yeah, it's a shame. But I'm very, very healthy in the body, I feel good. Plenty of breath, because I've never smoked. No, I never. My father used to apparently be a smoker. I can't ever remember him smoking, but when the slump came, he said, he said, that's it, I'm not. He said, my wife can't even get a new dress. Uh, he said, so that's it, I'm gonna knock off smoking, and he did. Right. So I never learned to smoke. Right, right. Uh, Well, thank you very much, Mac. It's been really interesting to talk to you. It's been fascinating. And yeah, well, I've actually, I've, I've wanted to interview you since the day I met you up there and you took me through the Sunderland. But, uh, um, and it was just by chance that I, that I happened to be here talking to Lindsay and he said you were downstairs. So. Yeah. Oh, that's good. Yeah. I think I've still, still got enough uh, memory to be able to give you... Uh, a fairly complete, I should say, a fairly complete. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, no, that was really, really yeah. interesting. I don't think there's anything I've given you that isn't correct. No. To the best of my memories. Well, thank you very much. Okay, you're welcome. That was the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood.